God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. What's well, a joy and a pleasure to be with you this morning. And I was particularly delighted when Father Lane extended this invitation for me to preach on this particular Sunday because this is such a simple, straightforward, and easy to absorb gospel text we are given from Luke. The first commentary on Luke chapter 21 I picked up began with the, this encouraging assertion. From verse 5 onward, this becomes a very difficult passage. So emboldened by that assertion, I want to, uh, to, in all sincerity, say how delighted I am to be with you here today. It's a joy to be serving among you as a campus missioner and to be serving with you as a partner in ministry. I fell in love with poetry at the age of 17. It was my junior year in high school, and I was taking a wonderfully designed interdisciplinary course called American Studies. I remember sitting in class one afternoon as my headmaster went on about the intricacies of post-World War I diplomacy, and I remember feeling a little bored. Absent-mindedly, I picked up my, my Norton anthology of American literature and began flipping through the volume. I opened up to a poem by T.S. Eliot called The Wasteland. This is interesting, I thought to myself. It's written in about nine languages. I tried to read through but couldn't make heads or tails of that opus. I found a shorter poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and from those opening lines, let us go then, you and I, as the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. I was hooked. I finished the poem and felt myself shaking. I was electrified, set on fire, aflame. Eagerly, I started the poem again and read it over and over. I couldn't shake my amazement at this sense that someone who had been dead for over 40 years was able to communicate something vital and vitalizing to me at such historical remove. It felt like that communication transcended time and space. It felt like revelation. Revelation is the undercurrent and the recurring theme we get in Luke's gospel passage for this morning. Like similar passages in Mark and Luke, this discourse from Jesus is known by scholars as the little apocalypse. The word apocalypse, as some of you may know, means literally an uncovering, a revealing. It means revelation. The Greek apocalypsis, like its Latin variant revelatio, is a disclosing or a discovering of crucial truths that had once been hidden. So we may want to ask ourselves, what are the truths that Jesus is revealing to his disciples in this complex, somewhat disturbing passage? And what in turn do those truths reveal for us as people who would seek to follow Christ? Let's set the scene. Jesus and his disciples are walking in the temple. and They would have arrived in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover with literally tens of thousands of other pilgrims. And the Temple Mount would have been the focal point and the epicenter of all the festal activity. And that sight of the Temple Mount would have been staggering to behold. 
In rebuilding Solomon's temple, King Herod brought in architects from Greece and Egypt and grandiosely leveled the entire temple mount to create a citadel and complex bigger than 10 football fields. The temple itself towered 10 stories high. That's about half as high as the UT Tower. And much of it was adorned with gold and silver and white marble. So here is how one first century historian, Josephus, describes it. At the first rising of the sun, the gold and silver reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it turn their eyes away, just as they would have done to the sun's own rays. But the temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceedingly white with marble. So the temple was breathtaking. It was meant to reflect something of God's grandeur and create a sense of the holy. So naturally, the disciples stand in awe as they marvel at these great stones, some of them 40, foot, 40 feet high, cut from a single block of marble. They wonder at it as I imagine we would. And that expression of wonder is what initiates Jesus' apocalyptic rhapsody. This impassioned moment of prophecy that begins with a very upsetting and unsettling assertion, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. How do we receive the teacher's words? How are we to interpret this? Well, we can interpret Jesus' prophecy in a socio-political framework as actually foretelling the destruction of the actual temple, which happens just a few years later in 70 AD under the Roman general Pompey. Or we can ex ex interpret it theologically and cosmolo cosmologically in terms of the end times. We can, we can interpret it as describing the arrival of the day of the Lord that Isaiah and Amos describe, when Yahweh will destroy all the earthly powers and put all things to rights. And we can also interpret it spiritually and even ethically and ask what wisdom Jesus is speaking into the lives of those trying to live out the great commandment that he gave his disciples earlier in Luke 10. Love God with all, one, all your heart and mind and spirit and strength and love one's neighbor as yourself. Jesus' response is in part so surprising and disruptive because we might expect this rabbi to appreciate the temple structure and all it stood for, an outward and visible expression of the desire of his people to live out the precepts handed down to Moses from a living, liberating God. In fact, the word here that gets translated as beautiful stones is actually the Greek word for good, kalos. So why is Jesus so insistently and perhaps even enthusiastically Proclaiming that these good stones, this beautiful work dedicated to God, has to be cast down. When I went off to seminary, I was still deeply in love with poetry. And I took an amazing course on American literature and theology where I rediscovered the writings of the American transcendentalists and some of the poets I had first encountered in that history course in high school. And I can remember going back to Houston and sitting in the office of the rector of my sending parish and effusing 
about how the beautiful language I was, I was discovering in the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Walt Whitman were opening me up to a new experience of theological truth and new possibility for how God could speak to us in our lives. I told him that all I wanted to do was create similar poetry that would help it express and reveal something of God's reality to others in a new translation, in a more compelling way. And I can remember that rector leaning forward in his chair, removing his reading glasses, looking at me very patiently, but insistently, and in a very paternal tone, saying, Travis, at some point, everything must bow. Everything must bow. I've thought about those words so often since that moment. Everything must bow. I don't think he meant that assertion in a life-denying sense. I think he meant it out of a sense of love, out of a genuine desire to help me save myself from the pride and even idolatry that I was falling into in my love for poetry. He saw that I was beginning to see poetry and the arts as an end in itself and not an integral part of a much more meaningful whole. He was, I think, communicating something to me akin to what Jesus is trying to relate to his disciples in this discourse on the Temple Mount. Both Jesus and that rector were speaking to a very natural tendency we have as humans, to fall in love with the good and lovely, beautiful things of this world rather than their creator. Here's how St. Augustine puts it. For behold, he says to God, thou wert within me and I outside, and I sought thee outside and in my unloveliness fell upon these lovely things that thou hast made. For Augustine, like Jesus, what is most important in life is a recalibration of focus, a recentering of our loves. In his catechism, Augustine eventually de develops an idea of what he calls the ordo amoris, the ordering of loves. For Augustine, the most important thing is to love God above all else, to fix our hearts and our visions and our sights and our efforts on God, to love God with all our heart and all of our mind and all of our body and our strength. And once we do so, then we're set free to love other things as well. We seek to love God. We move toward God and pursue God. We serve and praise and give thanks to God. And then all the other lovely things in this world, holy communion and music and prayer and bread and wine and poetry and friendship and relationship, even Netflix and UT football, all the things that give us joy in our meaning find a new context when related to that central core love, which is God. Love God, then do what you want, is what Augustine, is how Augustine puts it elsewhere. So I think the truth that Augustine and my former rector and Jesus finally revealed to us is that when we put God above all other things, we begin to love everything else in this world not as an end in itself, but as a sign pointing back to a greater reality, to their source. The lovely things of this world become not idols to be adorned, but icons in the sort of Eastern Orthodox sense of windows to the divine through which we glimpse the living God. Jesus sees all things through the eye of revelation. 
he recognizes the fact that the things of this world are always passing away. And he also acknowledges the fact that war and famine and division and persecution, suffering are very real aspects of this life. But he also reveals the good news that something much deeper, something truly good and beautiful endures. God endures. Jesus assures his disciple that God endures and will. Even in the midst of Roman oppression and persecution, God endures. Even in the face of the destruction of the temple, God will endure, and that same assurance is ours. In the midst of climate change and political stridency and partisan polarization, God endures. In the midst of gun violence and mental health and refugee crises, systemic oppression, terrorism, God endures. In the midst of anxiety and fear, over grades and fourth quarter earnings and job, food, and housing insecurity and screen usage, God endures. And if we endure, Jesus says, if we hold fast to the faith and trust in God's power to endure, then we are able to participate in that reality, that divine endurance. We will gain our souls, as Luke puts it. When we hear language like that, gaining our souls, we often think about the promise of salvation after this life. But Jesus, when Jesus talks of salvation and the kingdom of God, he is always talking about this life here and now. He's talking about the establishment of new realities of justice, peace, and mercy in this world. The word Luke uses for souls is actually the word psyche. So if Jesus... And in some sense is actually saying that when we live into God's endurance, God's reality and love, we're not just in assured the promise of life after this one, but we're given some new reality, some new life in the here and now, health and peace and psychological sanity. If we endure and follow this new way, loving God with all our heart and mind and spirit, we experience a new way of relating with God. And that sanity and health and strength will overflow into all the other good, beautiful things we do. We love God and then we're free to love other things, not as sources of security and meaning, but as offerings, as things given back to God. So I want to conclude with one such offering. One of my own efforts to bow down and offer this creative art, this poetry, I love so much back to God. My wife Gracie and I were married in 2017, and as a first-time homeowner, homeowner, I've been astonished to realize how much unending upkeep having a house requires. In my own self-absorption, I often resent having to tend to different domestic tasks, like raking leaves every autumn, mowing the lawn in spring and summer, and keeping that lawn watered throughout the entire year. I tend to think about these duties as taking away from the things I really want to do, like writing poems. But I've been trying to offer that act back to God and realize that everything we do, even the smallest tasks, can be these little apocalypses that reveal the goodness and loveliness of God. And it can be invitations to offer what we have and what we hold 
even for this briefest moment, back to their source with thanks and praise. So here's one instance of such offering. The poem's titled, Hourly Apocalypse. Mists of wistfulness envelop me in waking angst against again the fall, and gauze the almost autumn trees, who all this week, it seems unceasingly, have been shedding their unnecessary layers and flagrancies in emptying streams of green. So sweep up the leaves that have been gathering. Now pile, bag them, let them burn, and water every month of every year the lawn. There is a feeling courses through you that anything is possible. The tragic, magic, the unimaginable ravishment of what you, what a single poem can or cannot do. Let it rant, dismantle you. Let it encant and peddle you. Grace will have its way. One day say or now. Everything within you, ascending or descending, may be lashed against the masthead, cut through by the prow or plow. Everything within you, every single thing must bow. Amen.